My name's Tanner. I am a husband to Brooke and a father to Harmony and a pastor here at Grace Bible Church. And it's my pleasure to get to share with you tonight. Some of you have expressed your condolences and your grievances uh, over Brooke and I's uncle, Brooke's uncle, my uncle-in-law, who passed away last week. Uh, couldn't be with you. We were at a funeral in Tennessee, so we hated to miss last Thursday. He knew the Lord, had a tremendous testimony. In fact, it's impacted even my studying this week as I've thought about Uncle Lloyd's life and his testimony. You have a Bible. I hope you also have a handout. There's a handout on your, uh, on your chair there. I hope those are helpful to you. There's a lot of information on there tonight. Okay, I want you, you don't, we're not meeting next week, so this is two weeks worth of information, if you can imagine it that way, uh, that I've crammed into one week. So you can take notes on there and follow along in that outline. That'll help streamline your thinking and following along and paying attention as we go. Okay. There's also some additional advices on there I have. We'll cover those at the end, but you can just take notes on the sheet as you go. Well, we're in a series called Ambassadors. You know that if you've been here for any length of time. I met several new people tonight. You wouldn't know that. We're a series called Ambassadors. It's based on 2 Corinthians 5.20 where Paul says, We are ambassadors. We are uh, from a foreign country. We're a foreign place and we're ambassing. We are pleading on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to him. So we have studied in depth the gospel, the gospel content, not just for ambassading, but for our own lives and for our own hearts. When we come to grasp with it, when we come to terms with those truths, we also want to know how to what? Disseminate those truths to others. Okay, that's the goal is not just to hide these truths tightly away and keep them there forever, but also to be able to tell others about those truths. Okay, and tonight we're going to do that in a little bit different way. We're going to talk about ambassadors' testimonies, our testimonies. It's a good thing because we're in an age of subjectivity. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, an age of subjectivity is where judgment is shaped by personal opinions and feelings rather than outside influences. It's commonly called the era we're in postmodernism. Okay, and that presents, as we've talked about before, significant challenges for Christianity and significant challenges for evangelism. But I've also observed a, a serious benefit in an age of postmodernism and subjectivity and relative truth, and that's this, the power of personal testimony. In an age where personal experience is placed high and uh, anecdotal evidence is valued, personal experience and the lives of a believer have a special impact, I believe, in our age. Now, they've always had an impact. We're going to study tonight a testimony. And we're going to seek what we can learn from it and how it should impact our own testimonies. But in our age, I believe there's a special advantage we have. It's still one of the strongest proofs in a court today. You know if you testify, that's an eyewitness account. That's a personal thing. It's important. Further, listen, further, tonight is important because not many should become teachers. James warns us that not many should be teachers. Not many should be preachers. They'll incur a stricter judgment. Not many should do that. But all should give a testimony. All should be setting aside Christ as uh, special or sanctifying Christ as Lord in their heart, always being ready to give an answer for everyone who asks, always being ready to defend your faith, always being ready to give a defense for anyone who asks for a reason, for the hope that is in you, with gentleness and reverence. You know that, 1 Peter 3.15. Not many should become teachers, but listen, for you tonight, you should testify. You should testify as you go. It's part of making disciples. I find that not many can quickly articulate as new believers or as infants in Christ divine truths or serious doctrine. Now, I hope that as you grow in Christ or as you're growing in Christ that those things come more freely in understanding. You'll always be learning those things. But I find that new babes or infants in Christ rarely can communicate serious uh, truth. Sometimes that takes years to grapple with. But you know what I found? Almost immediately, someone can testify of what Christ has done in their life, can't they? In fact, that's what we see in John 9. You remember this, the man born blind. The Pharisees keep prodding, who was this guy? Who was this guy? He says, who he was, I don't know, but this I know. I was blind, and now I see. That's his testimony. That is his personal experience. You know, 1 John 1.3, where John the Apostle says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard. John's testimony, his book, his apostleship is evidenced by the fact that he walked with Christ, that he was with Christ, that he saw him, that he heard him. 
In Mark 5, you might remember the man possessed by demons. He wanted to come along after Jesus had cast out the demons and saved him. And Jesus said, stay here and do what? Tell them the great things that the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion on you. Paraphrase, tell them your testimony. Go out from here. Don't come with us, but stay and go and tell all these pagan people. Tell them your testimony. Testify. There's other testimonies we could look at tonight. Rahab, Jacob's, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. But I want you to follow me to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. This contains the body of truth that we're going to cover tonight. As you're turning there and as I'm turning there, I want to give you some background to Acts 26. Because we don't just step into time and space with Paul. We follow him, and I think it's helpful for you and I have some background going into this. In Acts 21, if we back way up to there, you can stay in Acts 26, but in Acts 21, Paul is preaching in the temple, and he comes under false accusation from the Jews. Okay, They're mad, they're fired up, and they drag him out of the temple, and they beat him. And they're beating him, and they're about to beat him to death, but the Romans, who were uh, in rule at that time, they step in. So the police, if you will, step in and stop Paul from being killed, And Paul's on his way up into the Roman barracks and he says, Hey, officer, can I have a moment to speak to these guys? You might recall this. In Acts 22, Paul gives his first defense. Tremendous testimony. If you want to study more, you can go to Acts 22 and look at Paul's testimony there. He gives a defense only for so long before he's interrupted. They want to kill him. And the Romans want to whip him. They find out he's a Roman citizen and he goes before the Jewish high court. That's called the Sanhedrin. That's Acts 23, and he does some questioning. That questioning causes a division or a schism in the court, and they're about to tear Paul apart. Instead of tearing Paul apart, they send him to Caesarea. Okay, that's nearby, and in Caesarea, there's a governor, are you still with me? A governor named Felix. Now, Felix listens to Paul's testimony. He can't find anything wrong with him. He's convicted almost to conversion as Paul testifies before him and says, this is what's going on. Felix comes under serious conviction. But Paul has to stay in jail for two years. Every once in a while, Felix will bring him out and he'll testify before him. But for two years, Paul stays in jail until Felix leaves governorship and Festus comes in. Aren't those good names? I feel like those are good cat names, Felix and Festus. Come on, dog named Trigger and a cat named Festus. That's beside the point. Anyway, uh, before Festus, he gives another trial. He's given another trial, and Festus has a really hard time understanding what's going on. He's not Jewish, and so his buddy uh, King Agrippa comes into town. He says, King Agrippa, here's what's going on. And King Agrippa, look at Acts twenty-five twenty-two, says, I would like to hear this man myself. I want to hear this guy you're talking about, says King Agrippa. Tomorrow, Festus says, you shall hear him. So on the next day, verse 23, when Agrippa came together with Bernice and great, with great pomp, amid great pomp, and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at command of Festus, Paul was brought in. What's going on here? King Agrippa's in town. It's a big deal. And they're going to have a big, in a big auditorium, they're going to have a hearing. And everybody who's important is going to be there. If you're important, you'll be there. Have you ever been to a big kind of meeting of important people, VIPs? You and I mostly are common people, but I don't know if you've ever been to this VIP meeting. I mean that as an insult. I'm sure there's very special people here. (laughs) But one time I was thinking back as I was thinking about this, and after college I interviewed for a job, and after the interview, a week later a guy called me, uh, the owner, the, one of the board members of this place, and he took me into the Yellowstone Club. Have you ever been to the Yellowstone Club? It's like you're on another planet. I mean, you just enter there, and it's like chandeliers in this beauty. It's just weird. And I go in there, this nobody, underdressed, undermannered, and I'm sitting at a table with uh, the provost of the other school, that one that starts with an U and then an M, and I'm sitting there with people from MSU and all these important people, and I feel like the the cat that got let into the table late. <laughs> just People are looking around like, what is this guy doing here? There's six people. What is this cat doing here? I'm there for the food. I'm looking around this Yellowstone club, and they're bringing in plates the size of Dalmatians, right? You've seen the big plates that they're bringing in. 
And they set it in front of me in the foods about that big on the middle of the plate. You ever seen fancy food? That's how they do it. Huge plates, small portions. My manners didn't get the best of me and I consumed quite a lot of food and had a lot of fun in front of these VIPs. I say that because that's the picture. These are VIPs. If you're important, you're there. And King Agrippa is there. These are the highbrows of society. And if tradition is any evidence and... It ought to be with Paul, amongst these highbrows, is a man with a unibrow and a receding hairline. (laughs) Paul was unimpressive by every stride. I'm not just making that up. Tradition says Paul had a unibrow. He had a receding hairline. He was short. He was bent over. He was unimpressive in every sense of the word. And so if you like, take your seat in the balcony and come with me into this auditorium. You can picture Paul... Mr. Receding Hairline, Mr. Stuttery Speech. He's in front of all these people. And Festus says, I've got nothing on the guy. Let me summarize these next few verses for you. King Agrippa, can you come up with something? Because he's appealed to Caesar, who is Nero at the time. Remember, these are historical people written down in history, not some fairy tale or fantasy. These are actual people that Paul's sitting before. And he appeals to Caesar. And Festus says, if I'm going to send him to Caesar, I've got to have something to write. Uh, who's the prisoner? Paul. Who's the sending him? Festus. What are you accusing him of? I got nothing. So King Agrippa, if you can help me out a little bit, that'd be helpful. So we have Paul. Different pomp, different officials, different day, but the same Paul. The same charges that had been exonerated many times before. Same charges, but the same changed man we're going to see. Way back in Acts 22, he gives testimony. Today, he gives testimony. Paul was a stalwart sign. He was a stalwart testimony in the midst of all these changes. You see, this is kind of silly, isn't it? Paul's been in prison for two years under what? Nothing. Felix didn't release him because he didn't want to make the Jews mad. There's nothing really that we can say that Paul did wrong. If you're like me, you're wondering, how would you just stay there knowing that justice has been perverted and you're in jail? Paul could have been very frustrated. And in fact, in Acts 26, this is his fifth of six defenses that he gives. I would have been very frustrated. Paul is not. In fact, look at me with verse 1. At verse 1, Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretches out his hand and proceeds to make his defense. In regards to all these things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. As I read this and studied this, I was struck with the correlation to Proverbs 16.21 that says, Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Paul captures and he holds the attention of not only King Agrippa, but Festus and Bernice and all those in attendance. He's positive. He says, I think myself fortunate or happy. He's complimentary. He says, you're an expert. This isn't undue flattery. This is Paul telling the truth. He realizes King Agrippa is a Jew. He's an expert in all these things. He requested his keen attention. He said, I beg you, hear me out. Listen to me patiently. In verse, more, in verse 4, he says, this is my manner of life. He's going to tell him his life story. Paul demands his attention and interest. This sweetness in Paul's life was the fruit of the Spirit. It was Christ shining through him and in his testimony and in his speech. And as I thought about this, I wondered, are you and I as bright in the midst of dark ideologies and opposing viewpoints. Listen, it's no mystery to you if you've been a Christian for any amount of time that this world, the world system, doesn't agree with Christ and the ideologies surrounding it. Are you as bright of a light in Paul in the midst of this dark spot? Verse 4 and 11. 4 through 11, uh, you'll see on your outline, this is the before with Paul. Paul's about to give his testimony, and he's going to tell us what his life was before Christ. This is Paul the Pharisee. Look at verse 4 and 5 with me. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee 
according to the strictest sect of our religion. Listen, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of their religion. He was the religious of the religious. He helps us in Philippians 3, 5, and 6 where he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, you may not understand all that language, but what you gather from that is when it came to religious, when it came to zealous, when it came to pious, this was Paul. People knew him, they saw him. In his first defense in Acts 22, which I've already alluded to a couple times, in verse 3, he tells us that he studied under Gamil. Uh, Gamaliel, thank you. Uh, Gamaliel, grandson of Hillel, one of the most important thinkers in the history of Judaism. Paul was a big deal. He studied with the finest. Gamil would have been the leader of the school that his grandfather Hillel started and the preeminent educator of his generation. He was one of the most respected members of the Sanhedrin. Remember, that's the Jewish ruling court. Gamil was a big deal, and Paul was a pupil of his. People knew Paul. That's part of his testimony. He says, you knew who I was. You knew that I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Well, it's tough for you and I to kind of gather this, but if you can't imagine, if you're from a town anywhere, if you're not like me, you were born, I was born in the sticks. If you're from a town and there's a sports team there, imagine some guy or some gal from your sports team, and everyone's talking about him. He's the next up-and-coming thing. That young man, have you seen him run hurdles? I tell you, he's going to the Olympics. That young lady, have you seen her play basketball? One of the best and brightest in the nation. And everyone loves to rave about sports in this small town or even in this big town. And when they go big to the NBA, to the NFL, to the Olympics, we say, we knew that guy. Remember that guy? We said he was bright. Or think of it in the academic or scholastic realm. This guy, he's only in third grade, but he's already doing seventh grade work. This guy is up and coming. Listen, that was Paul in the theological realm. Paul was important. He was the best and the brightest. I doubt any of us here tonight come from this type of religious noble background. But listen, the reality is our self-righteousness And our mind and nature is so polluted, we've decided ourselves, we've reasoned ourselves into believing that we've done many noble things before the Lord. And that's just not the case, as we're about to see. In verse 6 through 8, we see Paul's promise, the hope in his resurrection. Here he skillfully and carefully relates himself and places him in the same realm as the Jews. Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain. And they earnestly serve God day and night. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. What is this hope? Well, you know this hope is the hope of the Messiah. This is the same hope that the Jews had. It's the same hope. It's the same Jews that are accusing him. There's no distinction in the hope or in the Jewish people. Paul ties himself in with them. But look at verse 8. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? As soon as Paul ties himself in, he now causes a distinction here. Jesus is the divider. He is the hope. The Jews were the same. The hope was the same. The Savior was not the same. The resurrection is one of, listen, the resurrection is one of the central themes of New Testament preaching. Don't forget about the resurrection in your testimony. Don't forget about the resurrection in the gospel. As I thought through this, I had to ask myself, do you and I relate well to people in our conversations and in our testimonies? Do we seek common ground with them? Do we include the resurrection in the gospel? Over Christmas break, preparing for this, the Cross Life staff read many books about the gospel and evangelism. And one of the things I recognized immediately about my gospel was the deficiency of the resurrection in it. This is one of the central points of the New Testament. Do you include the resurrection? Do you and I realize that when we turn our conversation inevitably towards Jesus, it will be a defining moment in the conversation, maybe even a dividing moment in the conversation? 
And that's what Paul has just done. Our next section is verse 9 through 11. We go from Paul's promise to Paul the persecutor. Look at verse 9 through 11. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. And not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to the foreign cities. This is Paul the persecutor. Paul says, I get it. I just did this. I'm accused by these Jews and I was one of these Jews. Paul hated the Christians. He despised them. You can't help but realize that, not just in the overtones, but in the explicit statements about him in Scripture. Acts 9, right before his conversion, it says this, he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. How'd you like that, to know someone who's breathing threats and murder against your life? Paul makes his sin very clear here. Do you and I make our sins clear in our testimonies? Paul doesn't disguise his sin. He doesn't hide it. Neither does he glorify it. He simply states it as it is. I was talking uh, to a young man in Hannon Hall, Hannon Dining Hall last semester over lunch, and I visited with him, and uh, the conversation came up about the Lord, and I understood he had a background, some in the church. He was kind of like me growing up, a cheester, a Christmas, and Easter church attender. And uh, a conversation went along, and I helped him understand, I hope, portions of the gospel, and I shared my personal testimony with him. And I got done, and I didn't really know where else quite to go, and I said, uh, this young man's name, I said, how can I pray for you before I let you go? And he said, hey, you know, I think I'm doing pretty well. Uh, you could pray for my test scores. You could pray uh, that I'd keep doing well. And I thought, that's not what I was hoping to hear. I just poured my life out before this guy. I just poured my testimony out before this guy. I just talked through Scripture, and he says, I'm doing well. As I quickly reflected in my mind, I realized what had been lacking, what had been wanting in the conversation had been talk about sin. So I had to retrace my steps, and I had to go and talk about the law and talk about sin and help him realize through Scripture, he's not doing good. There's none good, no, not one. And I hope, I help demonstrate slowly through Scripture that he was in dire need and desperate need of a Savior. We can easily make those mistakes in evangelism. We can easily make those mistakes in gospel and testimonies, can't we? We look now from the before to the how. That is to say, this is or Paul's life before, and now we've got to ask how. How what? Well, how did he get saved? How was Paul provided for? Look at verse 12 and 13 with me. While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. (laughs) He was on his way to round up some more of those darn Christians, wasn't he? Not as some vigilante, but under commission and under blessing from the chief priests. Why does he mention that it's noon? Well, only crazy people go out at noon in the Middle East. It's blazing hot. The sun is bright. And the sun is at its brightest. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, you ever go to a matinee movie in the movie theater? And it's just pitch dark in there. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Instead of going back through the movie theater, you think, I'll cut out the crowds and I'll just exit out this side door. And it's dark and you open the door and whammo! It's as bright as it's ever been in your life. You go from darkness to bright. Listen, that's how it was for Paul. Paul was walking along and it was bright. And all of a sudden, it was so much brighter than he could even describe or comprehend so bright that it knocked him down. Understandably, Paul is knocked down physically, and I might add, spiritually. When the king of heaven at earth spoke to him, Paul was set back. He was humbled. He was put down. Verse 14, And when he had... Uh, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What is Jesus saying here? 
What does it mean to kick against the goads? Well, Paul was pressing against what he knew deep down was right. He was suppressing the truth. And the picture that Jesus gives him was one that would be very familiar to him in agriculture. Ox pulled. You remember us talking about the yokes a few weeks ago? Ox, oxen pulled. And uh, when they were breaking oxen to pull, they would often kick back. They would kick back against what they were pulling. And so people who were training them would put sharp things, either a stick or spikes at the back of their heels. So when they kicked, they would learn not to kick. It was the same way growing up on the ranch that I was on. Often we had to hobble mother cows because they wanted to kick their babies. And they'd hob- we'd hobble their back feet so they couldn't go very fast. And Paul is hobbling along. He's kicking against the goads. Jesus says, it's hard for you, isn't it? You're miserable. You're kicking against the goads. Verse 15. And I said... I am, and, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Here is Paul's entire conversion experience wrapped up in a few verses. If you want extra credit, you can go to Acts 9 and read some more there. But this is it. Paul says, this is how it happened. I was going along. I wasn't seeking God. I thought I was seeking God. God sought me. He came in a bright light, and he humbled me, and he showed himself to me. Okay, that's the how. Now we're going to ask the question, why? Okay, the why is found in verses 16 through 18. Why was Paul saved? Well, Paul was saved to be commissioned, commissioned for the gospel. He who the Lord humbles from his sin, he's faithful to lift back up again and commission to ministry just as he does Paul. Here, look at verse 16 and 17 with me. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Paul spent several years hearing from Jesus, being trained and hearing from the Lord directly. We don't have a lot of revelation on what that looked like specifically, but at least for three years, He learned from the Lord directly. Verse 18 says, To open their eyes, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness, just where Paul was a minute ago, and where he'd been brought from, to the light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. He's been brought from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God. Why? So that he may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among the saints, among the beloved. How? The answer is always the same. Faith in Jesus. That's how Paul was saved. That's how he's commissioned to tell others to be saved. By faith in me, Jesus says. God saves people for a purpose. And while Paul's commission, while Paul's ministry was unique in many respects, As an apostle, in some ways, it was very similar to ours in that he was one called to be a minister. The word is servant. He was called to be a servant. Two, he was called to be a witness. And that's what we talked about, if you can remember, way back at January 15th. Make disciples. Everywhere you go, go make disciples. Teaching, baptizing. He's called us to be servants and he's called us to be witnesses. When we go from the why to the now, what did Paul do since then? What is he doing now? Verse 19 through 23. Paul is now a preacher. Look at verse 19 through the first part of 20. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea, even to all the Gentiles. Paul says, I'm not crazy enough to disobey this vision, King Agrippa. Galatians 1.23, he quotes others saying this, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's Paul's testimony summed up in a verse, isn't it? He, is now, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul's turning up the heat here with King Agrippa. He's increasing intensity in gospel content. Look at verse 20, the rest of it. To the Gentiles that they should repent... And turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. 
This is the gospel in a verse, isn't it? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. This is emphasized by John the Baptist way back in Matthew 3, 8, where he's speaking to the Pharisees and he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If I'm not mistaken, most of you, or those, at least those of you in community groups this week, studied James 2.18 where it says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. It's been said cleverly, or cleverly and memorably so, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Okay? Repentance is followed by and evidenced by works. We are saved by faith and repentance. We are saved through and by Christ alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Mark it, friends. Is that the gospel you and I preach to others, to family, to friends? Yes, even to yourself. Is it this gospel of the New Testament? Listen, there's so many gospels out there today. We might well say they're not actually gospels, but distortions of the true gospel must stick to the word. We must stick to the truth. That's why there's been so much content on what is evangel. What is the gospel? Listen, before we can go out and evangelize, we need to know what the gospel is. Until we know the content, we can't disseminate the content to others. Is this the gospel that you preach to others? Acts twenty eight thirty one says, Paul went boldly and without hindrance. He preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not confuse, listen to me, do not confuse Paul's warmth and his sincerity and his sweetness. Do not confuse it for timidity or for compromise. Paul was red hot with passion for the Lord and his gospel. Verse 21 through 23, read it with me. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple. They tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying to both small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of His resurrection from the dead, He would be the first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Paul adds more content by turning from his focus on subjectivity and personal experience to the objective Word of God. He says, here's what's happened to me. Here's how I was commissioned. And here's what the Word of God says. We look now as Paul turns his focus to our last section, verse 24 through 28. Paul presses. Paul presses in and the tension mounts. Look at verse 24 with me. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Festus can't take it anymore. He says, Paul, you're crazy. You've read too much. You've learned too much. I know you're brilliant theologically, but your great learning has driven you absolutely insane. Verse 25, Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. Paul's stalwart. Paul, again, gracious. Graciously and humbly defends himself. He says, I'm not out of my mind. Excellent, most excellent Festus. I utter words of sober truth. Sober truth. Paul's so gracious. So different from so many Christians and how we respond today, isn't it? I thought of this, I thought it's like a, a minivan pulling out of a driveway and it runs over a little dog's tail and the dog's yelping. That's how so many Christians are today when something happens, when even small instances of differences come up. There's this yelping. Paul doesn't do that. Felix interrupt him, interrupts him and says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Paul says, no, I'm not. Most excellent Festus. I utter words of sober truth, of sound judgment. If they hated Jesus, they'll hate us. You know John fifteen eighteen. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it hated me before it hated you. Felix says, Paul, you're crazy. Is it any irony that in Matthew three, or excuse me, in Mark three twenty one, they accuse Jesus of the same? I think not. Now, Paul wisely shifts his focus back to King Agrippa. By my count, at least the fifth time. 
Uh, I want to take just a little tangent to talk about who is King Agrippa, because I think it's important for us to understand there's so many uh, King Herods in the New Testament. This is King Herod Agrippa II. Okay, he's the son of the Herod who killed James, beheaded James. You remember early in Acts, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, and he imprisoned Peter. Okay, his great uncle, you might remember Herod Antipas, was the Herod of the Gospels. Further, his great-grandfather, Herod the Great, he was the one that ruled at the time that Jesus was born. You remember he ordered the killing of all the male infants. He's a Jew, this Herod uh, Agrippa II, but a ruler of the Romans. His relationship with his sister, Bernice, Luke, in his accounts and uh, Acts, he never separates the two. Agrippa, Bernice, Agrippa, Bernice. His relationship with his sister was incestuous. And it was the talk of the town in their day, even among secular scholars. Paul was talking to King Agrippa, who was saturated in sin. Why do I bring this up? Because I want you, one, to understand the chronology of the New Testament and the chronology of Acts a little bit. I think it helps you to digest and understand and place this in the bigger scheme of things. But further, I want you to understand that Herod had a history of sin and unbelief, perhaps like some of you tonight. And he had a load of sin right in his lap. And here is Paul offering forgiveness to this Herod. Verse 26. For the king, Paul says, knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. These things weren't done in a corner, were they? No. Jesus' name His reputation, his resurrection, it's gotten out. It's known all throughout this Palestine area. Paul says it wasn't done in a corner, so let's stop pretending we don't know anything about this fellow Jesus. That's a great entry point, by the way, for people today. Often in conversations with people, I'll say, hey, I know this might sound strange, but can I ask you a question? Sure, what's up? Well, here's the question. What are you going to do with Jesus? What do you mean what I'm going to do with Jesus? Well, here's a guy who lived and walked on earth 2,000 years ago. Uh, Nobody, uh, hardly anyone, if anyone at all, would deny that. He claims to be God. He walks on earth. What are you going to do with him? You got to do something with this guy, right? Paul says this wasn't done in a corner. We got to be confronted with the idea of Jesus somehow in some way. It's an excellent entry point with people. Verse Verse 27, look at it with me. King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. If I was putting in a marginal note here, it would be an asterisk that said audible gasp. Imagine yourself. Are you still in the balcony? Paul says, King Agrippa, you believe the prophets. I know that you do. Paul takes control of the conversation. He directs it again towards King Agrippa. This is not merely and only a personal testimony. Now Paul is pressing in with the authority of what Agrippa and others would have realized is God's word, Moses and the prophets. You can disagree with me, King Agrippa, but are you going to fight against God's word? And eventually, isn't it? This is where all of our testimonies have to go, isn't it? To the word of God, back to objective truth and to reality. You can disagree with me, but King Agrippa... Are you going to fight against God? Look again at the warm, persuasive words and tone of Paul. He's in control amidst this great pomp, amidst what we could say might be called the Roman Colosseum. All these people of pomp and circumstance, the highbrows among the unibrow, they come and they're watching and they're waiting for him to be fed to the lions. And instead of being fed to the lions, Paul stands up and he confidently and boldly proclaims Christ. And he turns the tables and he says, King Agrippa, you believe Moses and the prophets, don't you? I know that you do. William Barclay, a commentator, said this is the most dramatic scene in the New Testament. Whether or not we agree with that tonight, I don't know, but this is dramatic. You can feel the tension. Everyone is on the edge of their seats as this man who's been in prison for two years but whom everyone knows about is now standing, rugged, unibrowed, receding hairline, proclaiming boldly, confidently, 
sincerely, warmly, passionately the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is really something, friends. Are you still there? Are you still looking on from above? King Agrippa is. He says in verse 28, Agrippa replied to Paul, in such a short time will you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa says, Paul, do you think that in such a short time you're going to persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa doesn't know quite what to say. He's a politician, and like any good politician, he deflects the hard question with another question of his own. (laughs) And he says, Paul, do you think that in such a short time you're going to persuade me? Agrippa's unsure. Look at verse 29. Paul said, I wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Wow. Paul says, of course I'm trying to convert you. What do you think I'm doing here? It's my whole objective. This is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To King Agrippa first, and also to the Gentiles, to the Jews, to everyone who will listen. Paul says, of course I'm trying to convert you. Turns out, matter of fact, not just you, King Agrippa, but everyone in this hearing, everyone who can hear the word of God. Suddenly, the brother and sister couple in sin and Festus aren't the only ones squirming in their seats. Paul jingles his chains and says, I wish you were like me, except for these. What a bold man. What a confident man. What a godly, humble man. Paul isn't pleading for a small shift in their thinking. No, neither ours tonight, nor a bit of an adjustment of our philosophy. No, he's calling for a rebirth. He's calling for repentance and for faith. He doesn't say, you're a bunch of cruel people here tonight. So I, want, I want you to become nice people. Uh, there are many nice people. But listen, there's no good people. Paul says there's none good, not even one. Paul's not calling for a small shift. He's talking about a total rebirth, a total new creation in Christ. He shared his testimony. He's given an invitation to believe, and he's done it with honesty. He's done it with urgency. He's done it with joy. And something interesting happens in the story now. It kind of fizzles out. Look at verse 30 through 32 with me. The king stood up, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began to talk to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if, not, if he had not appealed to Caesar. Incidentally, these uh, three verses are a great encouragement to any preacher. I think the rate at which people leave sometimes Afterwards, the content of the conversation, the attendance at church, when things get hectic and people reprioritize their life, can be extremely discouraging. You never know what's going to happen when you lay your life, when you lay what you've said, what you've experienced out before people. It fizzles. But we can't look too uh, unbecomingly, we can't look too harshly on Bernice and Agrippa and Festus. They were probably uncomfortable. I don't want to take too much liberty with the text, but Paul has said some very bold things, and uh, they wring their hands, and they can't take any more, and so they stand up, and they leave, and they change the conversation. We all need to be prepared, whether speaking or teaching or giving our testimony for any number of things to happen. I understand that conversation doesn't always have to... Uh, arise or surround what has just happened in Paul's testimony. I, I, I imagine and I understand that discomfort arises and easier conversation rises to the surface. I'm not saying that's all bad. But it's interesting, isn't it, that this just fizzles out. No sign of uh, further conviction, no sign of evidence, or no evidence of belief in any of them. I'm reminded of uh, someone I once knew who was in a foreign country smuggling Bibles. And they saw this person, uh, this lady, completely covered in black, uh, satanic symbols, uh, boarding a small plane with them. They were sitting in the airport for some time waiting, and they'd noticed this person. And uh, signs, shirt said, in Satan we trust, and other various uh, satanic things. Uh, 
person got on the plane with this lady, with this young lady, and thought all plane ride, how am I going to talk to this person? How am I going to confront this person? I know I need to talk to this person. Uh, They seem so stiff. They seem so dark. And so as that person thought about and uh, memorized scripture, they brought up after they got off the plane on the ride from the bus to the airport in this small place a verse on their cell phone. The verse was this, Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed unto men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Not exactly the most tactful verse to show someone if you're just going to show them one verse. But it was the verse that came up. And when he showed it to her on her cell phone, on his cell phone, her countenance immediately changed. She softened. He asked her what she thought about it. She stumbled to find words and glanced around. This hard woman, this woman apparently submerged in satanic things, was softened and broken by the word of God. The fellow got out of the bus after visiting with the young lady a little bit more, uh, left some material with her, I believe, and tried to point her towards Christ. As he was leaving, a tall and big-framed British man caught him and said, What did you think you were doing talking to that lady? You made her lose face. Not from sure if you're familiar with the phraseology to lose face. Uh, it was obvious that she'd lost face. It was obvious that she'd been humbled. Conversation proceeded with the angry British men to ask if it was truth. It didn't matter if face was lost. What mattered was the truth. And a conversation ensued. Listen, I share this story about this man who witnessed this gal because we need to be prepared for whatever to happen when we share our gospel, when we share our testimony. We expect rebirth. We expect new birth but we must be prepared for anything, even standing up and changing the conversation. Well, 32 verses is a lot of breadth to cover in one night. I understand that. I've never tried to do that before. I don't think I'll ever try to do that again, but I hope that it's been edifying for you. I want to wrap up, uh, incidentally, with some additional advices about testimonies. Okay. You'll see them on your sheet there. There's 10 of them. I think these are really important, and I want you, as we go into spring break, to think about these. Additional advices or additional thoughts concerning testimonies. One, submit our testimonies and our experience to Scripture. Submit our testimonies and our experience to Scripture. Listen, our mind, our memory, our experiences are fallible. Okay? Sometimes how we remember it happening isn't really how it happened. This is so, listen, this is so important. And probably out of the ten, this is the most looked over. Whatever happens in our life, we must conform it and submit it to Scripture rather than the other way around. So important. If you're given a testimony and someone else is there and they say, ah, that's actually not how it happened, that's not a good thing. Okay? We want to be honest and truthful and submit our experiences to the objectivity of Scripture. Number two. Be prepared to be coherent, brief, and concise. Acts 26, what we just covered, if you read it aloud in a conversational tone, I timed it three and a half minutes. Three and a half minutes for Paul's testimony. If you ask someone for seven minutes, respect their time. If you get done with your time and their brief time and they've honored that time, ask if you can meet up with them again later. Or if they're seriously interested, ask if they have more time. Be prepared to be concise. Number three, start with something other than I was raised in a Christian home, okay? Use the creativity that the Lord has given you. I hear so many testimonies. I love hearing testimonies, by the way. It's one of my favorite things. But don't start your testimony, please, with I was raised in a Christian home. Be creative, okay? Use different words. Use the creative powers that the Lord has given you. Use your brain. Use your heart. Use Scripture. Use Scripture. Herein lies the power, okay? Your words are important. Your experiences are important, but not as important as Scripture. Remember, Paul says, prophets and Moses, Paul's testimony was heavy with content. You don't necessarily have to say chapter and verse as you use Scripture, but your testimony should be laden with the truth of Scripture. You can share your testimony and not share the gospel. Be careful. You need to do both. Okay? Five, beware of the two-phase testimony. Beware of the two-phase testimony. Perhaps you know what I mean. I bet every three out of five testimonies I read go like this. I was raised in a Christian home. At age six, I made a profession of faith. I lived a godless life for 10 years. And then I, uh, I re-accepted the Lord. Uh, I re-repented. I redid this. Okay? 
I want you to submit again your testimony, your experiences to what Scripture says. Scripture doesn't have rededication of your life inscribed in it. Okay, does that mean it's anti-biblical? No, but it means that we should think through the grid of Scripture when we think of salvation. You can't accept Jesus as Savior when you're young and accept Him as Lord when you're older. Now, I have a typical two-faced testimony, by the way. I don't know when I was saved. Could have been when I was a freshman in high school. It was probably when I was here at college at MSU. But I'm going to take those and I'm going to submit them to Scripture and see what it says about the new birth. I'm going to take my testimony through that grid. Okay, what happens, listen to me, what happens teaches. And when someone asks you to give your testimony in a public place and you give a typical two-stage testimony, that begins to substitute itself for the authority of Scripture. And we enter into this two-stage testimony that's really not a reality. Okay, if you need further explanation or you want to work through that more, I'd love to help you. Number six, use structure. Here's a structure that we found tonight in 4 through 11. Paul talks about before. In 12 through 18, he talks about how. And in 19 through 23, he talks about after. Before, how, and after. Seven, use helpful language. Okay, so often I'll hear testimonies, uh, if, in particular if they're unbelievers, that use these words that unbeliever can't, possibly understand okay stay away from perspicuity of scripture and transubstantiation and all these kinds of things if you have to use a word like propitiation it's a good it's a rich word explain it okay don't assume that they understand what sin means what faith means what repentance means what the world means okay i put i hope i've been working on a sheet of simple definitions i put a few of them there i hope those are helpful to you i won't read through them with you number eight take time to do this now I've seen people pour hours and hours and days into a five-page testimony or a five-page essay and scribble down something quick right before they have to get their testimony done. Do this now and devote legitimate time to it. This is important. Okay. Number nine, mention specific people God has used in the process. Include lyrics or a song or a poem. I want to know as I'm hearing a testimony, who did God use? If I hear he used uh, Jamie, I think, man... That's so neat that he used another person. I hope that God uses me in someone else's life in their testimony. Okay? In closing, I want you to think about sharing the gospel with at least one person over spring break. Use your testimony. Type it up. Put it on Facebook. Put it, use social media. Put it in a note and a post. Tag some of your friends. Tag me in it. God love to read it. It's not witnessing per se, but it's a great place to start. We've covered a lot of gospel content up until now. It's your chance now to use it. Use that content. I pray this is helpful. I pray it's serious enough for you to deal with and to take and to do. You never know when you're going to have a chance to proclaim the gospel, do you? To a friend, to a classmate, to a family. It's important. Not many of us should be teachers, but all of us should testify. Let me pray. Lord, to you be the glory, great things you have done. So loved you the world that you gave us your son. Thank you that many of us here tonight have testimonies. We have experiences of how you brought us to Christ. You wrecked our world. You helped us to realize our sin and you turned us to you. Some of us, definite point in time. Others of us, it's a process. Uh, We might not know exactly when we came to know you. But help us think through the grid of scripture. Help us to communicate these things clearly. Lord, use us. Oh, how I desire, we desire to be used in the lives of others. Help us to make disciples for your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen.